Hello and welcome to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Jackie Broadhead. And I'm Rob McNeil. Rob, what are we talking about today? So we're talking about emptiness, um, which is it's a slightly odd concept for those of us who spend most of our time dealing with people freaking out about how full the UK is. But it's a really fundamental component of migration because when people arrive somewhere, they have to have left somewhere. Uh, the impact of that, the impact of people leaving in large numbers in particular um, on, on communities and places is dramatic. And in particular, we're talking to, um, to Vladimir Archuk and Maria Gunko, who are part of the Emptiness Project, which is run from Compass. And they, a lot of their work is, is focused on the former Soviet Union. And so we're talking to them, but it's definitely not just about the impact on places in the former Soviet Union. Yeah, the discussion really reminded me of the conversation that we had about immigration and the way that so many of our debates focus on immigration and so few focus on the kind of politics of immigration and what, as places kind of change, what will happen to them and what that will mean. Um, I thought there was just so many resonances between the way that we think about them and also this idea that it's relational that actually it's not about full places and empty places, but about the kind of conversation between ideas of fullness and ideas of emptiness, and that both of them actually can have impacts on people in those communities. That's right. And I think that one of the key things that that, uh, that comes up in this discussion is the, the idea of an imagined past, an imagined time when things were vibrant and alive and when there was something there, rather than a, a sense of the now where... You know where there is nothing there, even when, as we discover, in, uh, you know, through the conversation with people, even when there are actually scenarios where there's quite a lot of change, and sometimes there's actually quite a lot of new arrivals, even in communities that perceive themselves as empty. So it's this idea that that a place being empty or there being nothing there is a very complex idea that emerges from people's idea of how things should be rather necessarily from uh, from a, a sort of empirical idea of how things are. feels like half of our debate about migration is about the facts and figures and, and understanding what is happening. And then there's a whole other part, which is just about perceptions, and about how questions of migration and mobility make people feel. And that this is a really important flip side that we don't hear as much about. I think that's exactly right. And I think that, that that feeling, that sense of a place having been abandoned, particularly when that sense is that it's been abandoned by the state, the people that you're looking at, who you feel should be looking after you, what that drives people to. I mean, whether, you know, the, the idea that it might drive people to make certain political choices or get involved in conspiracy theories about why they've been left behind. Um, resonates, I think, really strongly with, you know, a post, post-industrial parts of Britain, the US, parts of Europe. It's, it's a really complex and interesting idea, and it's fascinating to speak to these guys about the very extreme versions of it that are, that are evident in, in these parts of the former Soviet Union. I completely agree. So let's get to that conversation. I'm joined today by Vladimir Archuk, who's a researcher on the Emptiness Project, which is based at the Centre on Migration Policy and Society here at Oxford University, and by Maria Gunko, who's a PhD researcher also working on the Emptiness Project. Um, so, Maria, if you don't mind, I'm going to start with you. Um, and this is really kind of like just something to situate us a little bit. 
in the UK, migration debates tend to be about the idea of fullness. You know, the concepts that dominate the debate tend to be about things like arrivals, overcrowding, competition for jobs and resources, whatever it may be, um, and controls. But the emptiness project is at the other end of the spectrum. It's, it, you know, it is about emptiness. Can you just explain to us why this is such an important part of understanding migration? Well, I think if we just look on one spectrum, we don't get the full picture. So we understand why people come, but then we won't understand from where they come from and what are the push factors. Um, so that's why it's really important to look at the places that are experiencing out-migration. It's just like in the debates, for example, in urban studies, if we only concentrate on large cities and we don't look at smaller places, then we don't have the full understanding of the world we are living today. So that's why I think we only can get the full picture of what is going on with migration if we look both at places of out and in migration. Okay, that, that's, that's fine. But while the idea of fullness is quite easy to describe, I mean, we can imagine sort of large numbers of people, the things, events and actions that, 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 that will make somewhere feel full. Emptiness is quite an abstract concept. It leaves a lot of scope for interpretation. So can you explain, you know, is emptiness actually just a lens for scholars or is it something that's actually tangible and meaningful for people in the places that you're studying? And if so, how does emptiness actually affect people? Um, so I think that both emptiness and fullness are very abstract concepts. So we cannot have complete emptiness and complete fullness in our world. So there was a, one time I read a paper about impossibility of, of fullness. So it's just very relational. Um, so when we talk about emptiness, we don't actually mean nothingness. We actually talk about this reconfiguration of relations between people, state, capital, and territories. And this is an emic concept, meaning that people actually use this word to describe the, the reality in which they live. Um, it came from Datsa Dzanovskas, uh, who is the PI of our project, uh, fieldwork, where people in rural Latvia will say, this is empty, that is empty, the shop is empty, the bus is empty, the house is empty, and emptiness is everywhere, sort of like denoting that there was something there, but now it's not there anymore. So it's relational. It's always, there was a school, but now there is no school. So now this place is empty, right? And in my field site, people um, in Armenia, uh, people say banchka or vochinchka, which literally means nothingness on Actually, nothing is not there, if we translate by Armenian standards. And uh, it's funny because the word ban means also word of God, like in the Bible, word of God. And so it's so empty that even the word of God is not there anymore. Um, and people say uh, about smaller places, Banchka uh, Vochinchka, talking about how um, their relatives are out migrating, talking about how there is no money, how there is no possibilities, how um, there is vacancies in apartment vacancies, housing vacancies, um, other vacant buildings. So they, comp they compare this reality to what was there before during the Soviet times when there was a bus route, there was a hospital, there was a factory, and now everything is closed, the bus doesn't run anymore, and so... Um, 
they use these words to um, to make sense of how they live now and what was there before. So for them, this is a very tangible thing, but it is also very relational. So it's always in comparison to something. Excellent. Okay, that's really helpful. I, I, I suppose one thing that I've realized that we, we haven't directly focused on yet is the location of your research. Um, so both both you, Maria, and Vladimir, you're working in the post-Soviet, post-socialist sphere. Is this something which is very specific to these locations, or do you think that this is something which is more global in scope? Well, I think it's quite a global phenomenon. If we talk about um, urban decay, for example, urban shrinkage, which these are the terms that are wildly used in literature, um, we can think about Detroit, for example, which is a very canonical place. Um, we, we think about Detroit, we think about ruins, right? We think about people leaving something behind. And in Europe, we can talk about, for example, Leipzig or Saint-Étienne or, I don't know, there's, there's a bunch of empty places in, in emptying places in UK also. So it's not only in the post-Soviet, but I think... What is specific to the post-Soviet is um, this political component that the whole regime changed. And, um, and then there were a lot of wars in the region. So it's different types of emptiness. There's this emptiness that is produced by state neglect. Uh, when people are forced to leave to um, their places of residence to um, to find a job, to um, to get a better living, but then there's also emptiness that is produced by state violence, meaning wars and like displacement. So I think um, these things make the post-Soviet region, the post-socialist region, quite specific. But it's not that emptiness is just confined to that. It's interesting how you can also find a lot of ghost towns in China, for example, which is usually perceived as this massive, very dense uh, country. So, so yeah, it's uh, we kind of live in the world of emptying places and they are all around us. But for some reason, they haven't gained so much attention yet uh, in the scholarly literature. So we are kind of all on the brink of bringing this uh, wider debate to not only to academic, um, into the academic room, but also, I guess, policy and in just to the general public. Okay, Maria, thank you so much. Um, now, Vladimir, describe the drivers of emptiness in this post-social space. Your, your team has been differentiating between what you referred to as slow violence and fast violence. And Maria has just been talking about the concept of violence within that as a key part of understanding this post-Soviet experience. Can you just explain a bit what you mean by these terms, slow violence and fast violence, and how they've manifested themselves in, in different forms of emptiness and what the implications of, those, of these concepts are for people and communities? Uh, yeah, indeed, we use uh, slower structural violence and uh, uh, faster spectacular violence as correlates of emptiness of uh, different types. And uh, speaking about slow violence, uh, I would uh, define it as a closure of essential resources for a potential development of uh, communities and, and individuals in, in these places that are emptying. And here we may think about uh, structural factors such as systemic lack of investment in infrastructure, in housing, in uh, uh, lack of productive investment that would uh, provide decent job opportunities, and uh, ultimately lack of vision of the future in, uh, in, the, in, in the people who inhabit this emptiness and in, 
in, in the local authorities. And places affected by these processes are uh, badly connected as the consequence uh, to, to the centers of economic growth, uh, to the centers of opportunities. Uh, they, they become stagnant uh, due, due to the lack of productive investment. And this experience causes the population out-migration, uh, whereas those who remain in such areas uh, describe their settlements as empty, abandoned places where the death is the only certainty ahead. Uh, this was the case in, my, in the first part of my fieldwork, which I did in uh, central Ukraine, in a region that was actually provided with a full range of raw materials, uh, was agriculture, uh, even oil, uh, but due to the lack of coordination between the state and private investment, uh, due to the uh, mismanagement and uh, inequality, uh, these, these resources did not, did not contribute to the growth, they contributed to stagnation. And people who live in such places they refer to themselves not as victims of some sort of definite violence, uh, as, as we would use it in normal language, but they uh, hint at that, they hint uh, that they are uh, victims of corruption of the mayors and uh, politicians higher up, uh, of uh, greedy businessmen and oligarchs and mafia networks and, and, and so on, and this... Uh, the the ideological correlate of of uh, what's what was produced in such places are often are often uh, demobilization, uh, lack of uh, lack of any resources for collective actions, and and the concomitant dispersed kind of co conspiracy theorizing. And ultimately, yes, slow slow violence take away political agency, whereas the fast, immediate, spectacular violence. Uh, such as the violence of this war, has, has an opposite effect. Uh, most of my research participants in the second part of my fieldwork, which I now do in, in, in Romania, so I talk to people who fled the war. When they recall the start of the war, they describe at first a debilitating shock that they experienced, hearing and seeing the explosions on the 21st of February last year. But and this shock uh, quickly gave way to mobilization, to uh, to an energetic and hectic activity in, in, in a few days or a couple of weeks, where people people uh, uh, started joining efforts to help the weakest in their communities to to join the army or eventually to uh, save their kids by leaving the country. Uh, or, or leading to another place. So as opposed to slow violence, the spectacular violence uh, has this, this mobilizing effect. However, uh, these effects, they, they peter, uh, peter out with time. So throughout my fieldwork, I saw how uh, the refugees started reproducing the patterns, this ideological explanatory patterns peculiar to slow violence. They resort to rumors uh, to distrust in the state, to uh, conspiracy theorizing, which which signifies something, which signifies the the fact that they they, they feel they lose agency and they, they feel they lose uh, potential for collective actions, and this this kind of dialectic uh, between these two types two types of violence they they persists uh, with time with uh, as as the war goes on. 
That's extremely interesting. I, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, so I'm going to just kind of, but it's interesting that um, Maria was referencing Detroit uh, in, in her earlier answer. And in fact, the description that you're giving of a, of a, of a world in which rumour and conspiracy theories emerge in these decaying places um, actually sounds enormously like the situations that you find in the kind of industrial heartlands of America. It sounds similar to the kinds of things that we hear in, you know, that, that seem to occur certainly in sort of former industrial areas in the UK as well, even. Maria, we're talking about this in the context of countries of, of, countries of origin, you know, places that people are leaving. But it's, it seems that emptiness does seem to have a relevance for countries of destination as well. Could you just, I mean, elaborate a little bit on, on what your research sort of directs us towards in that, in that situation? Well, I have two answers, I guess, to this. First um, is that uh, people who have lived in uh, places that are losing their constitutive elements, um, they have been affected by that. And I think that when they move to some other places, they definitely care, um, carry some sort of a lens of uh, how they look at places. But since they are changing their place of residence, there might be a different type of emptiness that emerges is that a lack of a meaning, lack of attachment, lack of integration. And for them, they can be in a place full of things, full of people, events. But if they're, um, I guess, they can't integrate, then they would still feel emptiness inside. So this is like one of the answer to that. But one of the other answer uh, emerges from my own field side. Strikingly, the, the recent war between Russia and Ukraine has brought fullness to Armenia, um, which has been actually losing population at a very fast pace. The capital, for example, has been changing rapidly. There is um, an enormous Slavic population now in the capital of Armenia, but not only in the capital, but even in my field site, which is 1,000 people in the middle of mountains, basically in the middle of nowhere. There is a community of Slav in there's political migrants, there are refugees, there are uh, um, even expats. I'm just going to how they call themselves. Uh, and there is a community of about 50 people there now uh, who are inhabiting a vacant uh, factory. So um, there's another spectrum. So in the country of destination, they found emptiness. They found a place of which people, they are residents of that place, actually say that there's nothing there. But now there is something. I mean, there was always something. There was the residence, there was two shops, there was a post office, there was a museum. And now there's this community of Slav people who are doing something there, some creative activity, mostly it's creatives. So they're um, doing some sort of their creative things. And um, um, when they come to the uh, countries of destination, they not only come to capitals, but sometimes they land in the places of which their own residents say that there is nothing there. And then they completely change the landscape of what is going on. It doesn't mean that they feel this emptiness because um, I think that for the residents, this place is still empty. They still say that there's nothing there, but they create a new layer of relations and um, a new layer of interactions that um, somehow changes the social landscape. But this is very, very, very something in work in progress. It's been going on for one year since um, since the beginning of the war. And so the consequences of this in migration to a place, to an empty place, of a completely different population with completely different values and types of lives, um, it's still hard to, to grasp like what is actually going to change. 
That's fascinating. I'm just, I mean, just as an aside, I mean, you're, you're describing a Slavic population now. I'm just interested, is this primarily a Ukrainian population or a Russian population or a mix of the two? Or? Yeah, there is some Belarusians, actually. <laughs> Let's not forget about that part of Slavic population. But um, so I would say that mostly these are Russians, but then there also are some Ukrainians there um, and several Belarusians and also uh, several Iranian people. Uh, who are also escaping the violence of their states. So it's uh, it's an open-ended uh, creative community, but mostly I would say like over over 50% is Russians. Vlad, it, it seems self-evident that the change from fullness to emptiness will, will affect places and change places and people. Obviously, I imagine that that's inevitable, but is it always, I mean, I was going to say, is it always for the worse? Is that change always for the worse? As, as Maria has already said, uh, these are relational terms and uh, they don't exist uh, on their own individually. Uh, we start, as, as anthropologists, we start from uh, the point of view of our research participants and uh, people who experience their Places are empty or emptying. Uh, they do it because they remember them being full or vibrant at some point, or because they see other places as as, as vibrant, as, as full of opportunities uh, for, for for them. And 30 years of post-Soviet economic uh, transformation led to an increase in income wealth, but also in uh, spatial uh, inequality. Uh, and th this is uh, this is a sort of microeconomic correlate to uh, our uh, to, to our topic uh, of, of emptying places in Ukraine, in Russia, but also in Belarus, uh, to the, the countries that I know more. Uh, the uh, the dynamic dynamic the economic dynamism uh, and and growth uh, where where it, uh, it existed in, in in mostly in the year in 2000s were concentrated in in the capital city in in Moscow and Russia and in Kiev in in Ukraine uh, but uh, and also in a few uh, economic centers and these places vibrancy that attract people and capital. Uh, they exist uh, at the expense of uh, vast uh, regions that have been uh, stagnant or have been degenerating. Now, Maria, you talked about people reassembling uh, their identities in new places. Now, is that something that migrants have to do, or that all migrants rather have to do, um, or is there a different form of this that's specific to those who've who are who are leaving or who've or who've experienced emptiness? Um, I can't say for I can't generalize here. I can only I guess give some maybe examples and some base my knowledge on what I'm seeing in my field site. But I'm reminding small empty place with a Slavic predominantly Slavic migrant community. Um, I would say that it's not the place or the uh, or the local people that uh, influence them influence them to reassemble their identity by but rather the conditions from which they fled um, so most of these are either refugees or political immigrants and so they are kind of really rethinking um, their life in various aspects um, so they were both categories were displaced um, some violently others less violently 
Um, and now in a new place, they're kind of thinking of how to move forward, who they are. They are experiencing a very, um, very stark existential crisis. Uh, this is what I can see. So I can't say for all migrants, but I can definitely say it depends on what are the conditions that they left behind. And in conditions of severe trauma, um, they definitely rethink their identity. And this might not be even related to um, to where they are landing. This is like a very internal process of rethinking how to move forward. Finally, Vlad, um, I was hoping that I could just talk to you a little bit about the idea or the relationship rather between between conflict and emptiness. Now, I mean, we spoke in our very first podcast to you uh, just at the very beginning of the of the of the invasion of Ukraine about this a little bit. But I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit on what you think that relationship is and how we should analyze it. Uh, since then, obviously, quite a bit of work have been done on this. Uh, there have been uh, Numerous projects and and, and 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 journalists working on documenting uh, document the, the the effects on on the of the war on frontline communities and in uh, uh, places that that have been affected by by bombings by uh, by uh, by shelling. Uh, now we have an added layer. We have uh, the um, environmental urgency that obviously affecting uh, the front, uh, the places ar around the front line in Ukraine. Uh, not only the uh, with the destruction of Kahovka Dam and uh, the destruction of kilometers and kilometers of territories down down the flow of the river, but also pollution of the land with, with explosives, uh, the inability to cultivate the land near the front line. In, in, in effect, if uh, one looks at the current space maps uh, of, of, of the south and east of Ukraine, one can see from space how the front line affects surrounding areas, uh, creating spaces that have been uncultivating, uh, creating belts of completely destroyed settlements uh, that have simply disappeared, settlements that have been evacuated with few remaining uh, residents. These are the, the, the most vital, the most urgent, uh, the urge, most urgent questions that uh, one should uh, focus on in in. Uh, uh, interdisciplinary studying of the war, but the, the second uh, aspect, and it will become crucial, is the study of uh, migration, because this has been an, uh, a truly unprecedented mi migration in uh, recent European history. It, it includes, uh, of course, uh, millions, over five millions of uh, Ukrainian refugees that uh, fled to Europe and and uh, but also to Russia, uh, but it also should include s systematic treatment of this wave of migration that include uh, obviously the Russian citizens that are escaping from political persecution, uh, Belarusian citizens, but also those who are cut in caught in between, those who live in Ukraine without Ukrainian residence permit, and or those who use this route through Belarus uh, from from the Middle East, from Afghanistan and Africa, and who are caught in this kind of geopolitical struggle on the border. Uh, the migration um, obviously contributes to uh, to emptying and, and uh, the, the population of, of the countries migrants come from, but 
uh, they uh, also need to be studied in the, in the new places because uh, uh, by now uh, I think it's evident that the war will not end soon. And meanwhile, these people, these people who ended up in Europe, for Europe, for example, they are caught in a specific kind of temporal temporal conundrum. They are given temporary protection without knowing exactly when it's going to expire. So it means that they should be potentially ready to to leave, uh, to, to to return at, at any moment in time. And uh, given that the war is fundamentally uncertain, it's uncertain not only for, for the refugees themselves, but also for the Ukrainian government, uh, they, can't, they can't plan anything. And uh, this, is, uh, uh, th- this is something that, com- that breaks down completely their idea about the future and uh, that, uh, destroys, uh, that destroys that their identities, uh, not not only like identities in national term, but identities as as as, as uh, in terms of gender, in terms of, fam- of family, in, in terms of social status. Um, that that's that's a huge that's a huge chunk of work that's uh, that's ahead of us. Well, I have to say, Maria and Vladimir, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Um, I'm enormously grateful to you both. Uh, So I I think that unless there's anything else, um, I'm going to say thank you and hopefully we'll speak to you both again soon. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Migration Oxford podcast. I'm Rob McNeil. And I'm Jackie Broadhead.